All right, soccer freaks. This is ATL on Fire, the podcast where we're going to be talking all things Atlanta United Football Club. So sit back, buckle up, and enjoy. everybody thanks for tuning back into atl on fire we got another podcast here for you and uh, if you are new to the show please uh, subscribe Uh, we're now on youtube so subscribe ring the bell tell a friend and we are on all the major podcast catchers out there uh, google apple spotify uh, whatever your choice is so really appreciate it if you guys want to leave some reviews we would appreciate it and uh give us a rating all right um we're gonna jump right into it um you know really uh my my rant this week is uh about the last two games so the uh the miami game which we drew zero zero and the one one orlando game on saturday uh with a last minute goal from my favorite adam john to uh (laughs) to tie it up and and really, I mean, the one word I have for both games is is unwatchable. Um, they really were tough to watch. Uh, I was struggling with really trying to find uh, again a positive um, structure to what we were trying to do. I certainly wasn't seeing the Atlanta United style that we have grown to love, um, and and the brand of soccer that we want to be playing at Atlanta United, which is free flowing, fast. Soccer, I felt like Glass just had 11 players out there doing their own thing and certainly understand that he hasn't had all the practice time in the world to implement any sort of new structure. But at the same time, um, there has to be some sort of cohesiveness to what they're trying to do out there. Um, some sort of, hey, let's go out there and lose 7 nothing um, or bust. And you just weren't seeing that. And, you know, I'd rather lose 7 nothing with, you know, people – uh, really attempting to do something and break down a defense and, and just go for it and entertain me. And uh, just wasn't seeing that. And this is coming from somebody who is watching Nations League uh, play, you know, with Faroe Islands playing Andorra or something like that. And, and benchmarking against that, uh, the Atlanta United games were really tough to watch. So it's a high bar, Mikey. Dodge. So a my very bu- high bar. Dave, what was, I mean, <laughs> where are you landing with uh, your, your overall, um, do you agree with me, pretty unwatchable? Well, I mean, you know, you, you're holding so much back, Mikey Dobbs, yeah. I can't tell what you think. <laughs> no, I I, I, uh, I completely agree. Um, the the games were, were not good. Um, um, I think the other thing that's surprising to me, the more I think about it, you know, so many coaches say that it takes, you know, X amount of time before they're really going to know my system and do what I want. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that teams get, you know, better under a new coach for a certain period of time. But I, I, I kind of disagree that it takes that much time to get the basic system down. These are professional players like, um, you know, not to say that you're, you know, in two days, they're going to know, you know, how to play, but within a series of, you know, a month or whatever, 
I think with most coaches, you'll know whether or not they're making a difference. Right. So I'm having a Mark West Pinot Noir. You, uh, I saw your photos from your harvest on Sunday. Uh, your Norton grapes look beautiful. Um, are you uh, having a glass of wine tonight? Yeah, I'm officially a winemaker. I don't know whether we're allowed to talk about that so much on the on the ATL on Fire podcast, but give a um, plug. Yeah, I'm making making my own wine from our own vineyard in Smyrna. Um, a friend of mine, Enrique, who was on the podcast, um, we have a vineyard at his house, and uh, we're making our own wine from scratch. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, cool hobby to 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 get into. So I'm I'm curious to see how the next couple of stages go. Yep. And tonight uh, I am drinking a um, Cabernet from Argentina, from the Mendoza, which is the, the famous Argentinian wines. And uh, it's an Alto Cedro. Um, I've never had it before, but um, nice. it's pretty good. Um, so, yeah, to, just to, to add on to, to what you're saying, well, I think, you know, for any coach, you know, you don't need that much time. You know, I've been been listening to a couple other things on kind of the the state of the team, and you know, with Frank DeBoer being really the first kind of domino to to fall here, with PT being transferred to the the Saudi Arabian team, a bunch of new players coming in, um, you know, with with different expectations of of how the team was was going to play, whether that's you know even Castro uh, in February to uh, you know, Jurgen Dom and Joseto and, and all of these players, there's so much change. There's so many different expectations of maybe what this team should be given the, you know, the, the clout that Atlanta United has gotten from going from zero to 60 and winning the, the cup in 2018, that there's a lot of people who are just kind of lost, I think, in where we are as a club. And it just shows how critical it is we need to get the right coach in quickly to fix this thing. If we're going to do anything this year, certainly, which I think I'm, I'm not too optimistic on, but if we're going to do anything in 2021, we need to get that right to get the dominoes back in place. So soccer is, is at heart. It's a, it's a pretty simple game, um, but it's hard to get those things right. So in order to be a good soccer team, you need spacing and movement on offense in order to make yourself difficult to defend. And yet you still have to have balance and you have to close down spaces defensively. So if you look at Atlanta United right now, um, spacing, I mean, I'll, I'll throw it out to you, Mikey Dobbs. So if you were to go through those things, you say, all right, how do, how do we look spacing wise? Well, I mean, that was one of the first things I noticed, even in the Nashville game, the spacing um, you could tell there's an unfamiliarity un- with each of the players and um, them not creating very good triangles amongst each other and creating good supporting runs. So the spacing is, is really poor uh, across the board. And, and part of that is understandable because a lot of these players haven't had minutes on the field together in a real you know game experience. Um, and, and so that seems very evident to me that the spacing is poor and that that affects everything in terms of how you move the ball quickly because you're second guessing where the guy who's supporting you is going to be or where they're going to run, uh, and that's that's quite evident in the last couple of games. So we certainly have width, 
right? You know, we have guys out wide. And so that's supposed to help you in the middle of the field to get spacing. Um, but those guys are not so spaced. We tend to have sometimes multiple players pretty close to each other out wide. And then in the center of the park, um, the spacing is really poor. Um, there's no, you know, the forward, Adam Jean or Kubo, whoever it's going to be. Um, between um, that player and Barco um, and maybe Rosetto, who are the attacking kind of spacing, but they're, they're kind of in each other's spaces. They're not in, in open spaces. So I would say our spacing is not terrible. It's, it's, it's decent. It's not great. Yeah. But the, the thing that I think, I think is really lacking is movement. So how would, how do you rate us on movement? Uh, not certainly not great as well. I mean, you know, you know, I think, you know, I'm, you see the idea of, at least with glass trying to want to play direct through the middle and, and, and play quickly. And, and sometimes it's due to skill or whatever it's, it's breaking down because of a poor touch. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think they're trying it, but it's breaking down early, and then that creates a lack of confidence. Yeah, I mean, you have to move people around. Um, and so, you know, the the easiest sort of standard way to do that, that both DeBoer and, and Glass are trying, is to have movement out wide. And so we, we certainly have our outside backs going forward, that creates some movement, but as we've talked about on the podcast, you know, before they're sort of moving completely automatically and it's too early. Right. And so they end up just running up the space of somebody else. And, um, you know, we've had at times them running up early, you know, a Balo is running up early and running very close to Barco or, um, a um, Escobar is running early and running very close to Brooks Lennon. So um, yeah, there's some movement there, but the movement, it's not dynamic. It's always the same run and it's only a certain amount. Right. So then you got to look to the middle of the park and you say, all right, well, where's the movement? Obviously the, one of the guys who has a fair amount of movement is Barco. You yeah. see him popping up in different holes. You know, that's pretty good. Um, we're getting very little movement up top. You know, our up top player is, you know, Jean, or um, it's a little better with Kubo, but they're not really making runs. They're certainly not a threat to run by anybody um, speed wise. Right. Um, so we don't have a lot of movement there. Rosetto, you know, I think he's getting, you know, sort of yeah, I saw, comfortable. I saw a few things from him that were positive in terms of, creativity and and somebody other than Barco that could potentially break down the other team um he he was trying and and that was positive but really again it was Barco that was the only one that was trying to bring any sort of creativity by you know moving laterally and then at times trying to take people on directly through the center of the field okay so the 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 next two things are balance and sort of closing down the space defensively. So how do you think we do from a balance standpoint in terms of offense, defense and having a balanced field? Well, I mean, across the board, and this is where I just struggle with MLS play. Sometimes the field 
in, in many of the games is so stretched that there is a lack of compactness both defensively and offensively that you just rarely see in other leagues. And so to me, the balance was, was always off um, because of that. I mean, you need to be moving as a one unit up and back uh, on the field to have balance. In my opinion, when you talk about true balance, if you're an accordion and you're strung out, then you've lost your balance. Well, I think that actually goes a little bit more to closing down spaces. So if you get really stretched and the defense is not up, then it's really hard to close down the spaces and you give people a lot of space to maneuver in. The balance is a little bit more like who's going forward and who's staying back. So like the outside backs going forward when we don't need them, you know, on the weak side, as we talked about, that creates a balance problem because if you have both of them going and you only have two guys back, you know, if you send both of your outside backs forward every time, that leaves you with only two players back um, and they better be giving you a lot offensively because the balance is a little bit off. You end up with only two players in the back. Nobody would set up a defense with a back two. Um, And so those players are not, the outside backs are not expected to be up the field when we lose the ball. And so that's a, a little bit of a balance problem. That's why I was saying, you know, it seems to me that we could get away with, one of them going early, you know, as a run and the second one joining once we've broken the lines, as, as Jeff was talking about on our previous podcast, once we've broken down the middle, the second one can join. And then we always have three in the back and we're a little more balanced. Yeah. But as far as the you're talking about closing down the spaces um, that gets to. All right. Well, you know, when we lose the ball and the ball turns over, how easy is it for for them to break through our lines. And I think particularly in the midfield, um, I think our back, the back two, the center backs are, they're up the field pretty well. They could do a better job of making it even harder. Um, The center of the field is a bit of a mess. Like so many times um, when the ball turns over, they have an easy first outlet ball, um, which makes it easy for them to break our lines. Yeah, and I mean, there was there were so many times where yeah, I, th- I think the competition had been better. Um, there were there were moments like that, and even in the Orlando game when they did break through and laid it off to I don't know who the outside right person who fanned it. Um, it was a pretty awful miss on Orlando's part there, but it was just kind of the par for the course for the unwatchable game that I was watching. Um, but in terms of balance, I mean, I think the other thing is you know PT Martinez, who I think is obviously in the headlines having moved to the Saudi Arabian club for 18 million reportedly. I think we got him for a little over 14 or something like that. Um, you know, we had certainly over the last year been, you know, with particularly Joseph being out trying to design the team uh, around him and balancing things off of him, even though I think there's a lot of cachet in Barco. Um, it seemed like Martinez was definitely more of the, um, the person that they were looking to, create that that around over the near term and with him gone where is that going to where is that going to come um it seems like we're taking barco out of the game early uh i it seems like he's fit enough to go i don't understand the the rationale well what i was going to say is so if you go to joseph martinez you know the moments where we did struggle under tata which weren't very often 
was when we really couldn't break the line. Sometimes when we had a few injuries or things like that and struggled and could, or, or there, like, for example, a couple of our epic, you know, meltdowns against um, the Red Bulls, we had trouble getting out of the back and breaking the lines. And in those games, Joseph Martinez just disappears because if you're breaking the lines and coming through now, he's suddenly a dynamic runner, but he's not a runner until you've broken the lines and gotten into the midfield. Um, so right now, you know, when you say we're unwatchable, I agree. And I think we're unwatchable because of the dynamic from going from back to front and in the midfield. So you could put Martinez in there right now and, you know, he'll help a little bit because, you know, you give him one chance and, you know, you don't have to break the lines that many times. He gets one chance he'll score, but he's not going to look nearly the player that he was on this current team. We have to figure out a way first to be able to create a dynamic in the midfield to, to even have him be a part of the equation. Right. Um, and, and what do you think about, I mean, it seems like, you know, there, there's been some successful stuff from Bella from times on the left side. I was a little more encouraged. I mean, Lennon had some, actually had a really nice cross into Kubo, which I don't know how he missed that in the, the last game. Probably one of his prettiest crosses uh, that, you know, Joseph would have slotted in, in the back of the net. Um, and, and um, yeah, I mean, there's a few encouraging signs. I'm trying to find the, the positives. But, well, um, you know, the question is the dynamic, right? You know, how are you going to create a dynamic in the middle of the park? I mean, in, in fairness, you know, if you're talking about coaching or whatever, some people might argue that, you know, Tata didn't have to create such a dynamic in the middle of the park. His dynamic in the middle of the park was just Al Moran. But that being said, um, I disagree with that in that. So one of the things that Tata did is uh, Al Marone was sitting in really good spaces. He was always available. And so they played through Al Marone, But once Al Marone had the ball, then the outside backs were going forward. And now you have a dynamic because, um, you know, or, you know, obviously, as Jeff talked about, we also had Nogby who could turn his guy every time, which is yeah. a super asset. Um, but even being said with all of that, um, the, 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 the movement that we had in the midfield was much better timed and was much more open into spaces. The outside backs were not just running right into the outside midfielders. Um, you know, you had, um, for example, it was they played a little bit unbalanced. Al Marone would play a little bit more in, sitting in pockets. Gressel was more out wide. So Al Marone would create a space for an overlap, which was typically Garza. And he wasn't running right into Al Marone because Al Marone was inside a little bit. Whereas on the other side, Gressel was out wide. Escobar was coming, but Escobar would really only come very late when Gressel had made a move and sometimes he would overlap. But most of the time it was Gressel out there by himself. Um, and occasionally Escobar's movement was inside of Gressel. Um, and so there was a, the, the dynamics came from the spacing was much, much better. Um, but there's no reason why Barco couldn't be the same player that Al Marone is. You know, yeah. he's just not being told to set up in better spaces. And Bello, who, as you point out, is really good outside. In fact, 
you know, he might even be a better attacking player than Garza was. Um, I think, you know, the funny thing is that I think, in my opinion, that um, Barco, his natural instinct is to really fight hard for the ball. And I think he's being asked to play too much defense. Um, At times you see him tracking back and trying to make a tackle, whatever. When we win the ball, he's not in a good space. We don't need him. It's funny. We've got a back four. Let them win the ball. It's funny you said that it was in the the Orlando game was the last one, right? He was in the box. And I was like, who is that who actually got back on defense and won the ball and and got it out of there? And I was like, because I wasn't expecting Barco to be, you know, in the corner of our box, given the the positioning on the field. It was Barco. that, that got in there and got gritty and actually knew how to play some defense. And again, to your point, like then there's no outlet. I mean, he was dribbling it out, but then it's, it's, it, it, it wasn't in the Miggy position where it then slots out to him, you know, on the 40 and he turns and goes where that's where Barco needs to be. And you need remedy or somebody like that to actually be the one who's winning it in the box and playing that quick pass out to somebody in, in space and um, then, then turn and go. Um, yeah, because because right now, so Miggy knew when he would chase back and pressure guys, a lot of times he would double team into the midfield. But as soon as it got to a certain point, he actually switched into an offensive mode and he used to just go and sit in a space. And yeah. so the moment the ball turned over, he was available. So what do you think about the news, which I really wasn't expecting that, that quickly, which was PT's transfer to a Saudi Arabian team Al Nazir is that how you pronounce it yeah I don't know how to pronounce yeah. it but I'm, I'm taking um, I'm taking yeah, the Saudi stab. Arabian team yeah um I don't think Atlanta United was expecting it either I think Atlanta United thought I think Atlanta United um wasn't sure whether PT was still struggling to settle or whether this was the best PT was always going to be, you know, moments of brilliance and then moments of disappearing, um, very inconsistent. Um, and I don't think they expected to be able to recoup their money at all. And I don't think they were looking to sell him at all. So this bid came in a little bit out of the blue and they suddenly thought we don't have to wait and find out whether or not he ever is going to be, you know, get over the hump and get comfortable and be consistently good we we worried that he may never get there and we don't have to worry. We can turn and turn a profit right now. And they just were like opportunistic and took it. Yeah. I, I tend to feel like that's, that's what happened as well. Um, and Atlanta United knew like if there's any sort of cachet that he still has from, uh, from river plate that, you know, is going to allow that credibility that, that now was the time and that it was probably the best thing to do with um, all the turmoil that the, the club seen and, uh, you know, it just didn't seem to be working. But what what do you think about looking back back the last year or so with PT? I mean, I certainly feel like it was a bust overall. Um, certainly did not have the numbers that I was expecting of a player of his quality. Uh, again, you know, when I look back at just take free kicks alone, I don't care. Horseshoes and hand grenades, um, it, close, you know, doesn't count. It's great that you shot a bunch one foot over the the crossbar. And yeah, there's a lot of reasons you could say, but he had plenty of chances with that. There were too many moments of um, mistakes 
of just not taking care of the ball as a player that previously came from kind of the, the opportunity to be, you know, more of a luxury type of player in terms of, you know, getting the ball up in, in higher spaces and just having the freedom to go where he's asked to, to do a lot more with Joseph Martinez out of this team. And a lot of times playing without the other two designated players in the field, he did not shine the way that I was expecting him to. So I overall give him an absolute bust in terms of what my expectations were. It doesn't mean that he's, well, it doesn't, doesn't mean that he's not yeah. the best player in the, like, I think we're losing our best player that said too, in terms of, production and, and everything but still to me he's a bust there are different types of players so you know you take it will go with world famous players so it's easy um if if um if you go with um cristiano ronaldo right you know so cristiano ronaldo is the kind of player big and powerful and pacey and it's probably going to look good on any team period yeah. Um, if you look at a different type of player, Griezmann, right, who was literally one of the best players in the world for France and Atletico Madrid and then transferred to Barcelona and has disappeared, he's a world player of the year kind of candidate, but he's a, a confidence kind of build off the what's yeah. going on on the team, make everything better. And I think PD is that kind of player. So, you know, within a team – the team is you know if he's comfortable and things are going whatever i think he would look great including i think you'd probably see him bury some of those free kicks um but when it's not going he's not the kind of player um he's not a cristiano ronaldo or even like a, a, a suarez who's a little past it now but suarez is the kind of player on any team he could have looked phenomenal on um you know west ham um would have been phenomenal um, so there are different kinds of players. Uh, you know, Jeff described it last week as Batman and Robin. Uh, I'm not sure it's Batman and Robin. I think that might be a little overplaying it, but I get what he's saying. Um, he doesn't want to be the the primary guy. But Batman and Robin almost seems like he needs a primary guy to be great. I'm not sure that's true. Mm-hmm. I think that he could be great if it's in the right settled environment. I think he came from a Batman type of mentality at River Plate. So I think him mentally coming in thinking he was Batman was not overthinking it. I mean, given his quality. So I expected him to be Batman um, straight up, uh, you know, given given the highlights that I saw. and um, Barcelona expected Griezmann to be Batman too. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. I, you know, I haven't, that's a name. It's, it's funny you use him as the example because I can't think of any highlights with Griezmann, but I know the name very well. And I don't watch a lot of Barcelona games, but it seems like Messi kind of is overshadowing him as the, um, kind well, of Griezmann was, was the guy, the Batman for Atletico Madrid. They went to the champions league final. Um, they were runner up in, in La Liga. I mean, he was the man. And then, and he was in, for the French World Cup team, he was, you know, the star up front, um, the best, you know, arguably the best player on that team when they won the World Cup. Um, and then he goes to Barcelona and he's just, he's playing in a different role. It doesn't suit him and he's disappeared, um, which is crazy. If you see a guy who's that good to disappear. Yeah. No, and I mean, look, I mean, PT 
clearly in the right circumstances, I think could be just as he was at River Plate, an amazing player. It just the 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 fit here in Atlanta United, the culture, the new coach, uh, you know, a new environment for him. I think there's just just a multitude of things that created that lack of confidence or. Um, the, the the level of confidence he needed to excel and be happy wasn't always there. You saw a few moments there. I mean, even in the you know the Nashville game where he scored two goals, you can see the guy wants it. Um, I don't think it's a lack of heart by him at all, um, and and definitely wish him the best. But now that we've got eighteen million dollars, which I think is the second biggest transfer fee behind Miguel Almiron, which is $24 million. Dave, what do we do with this extra cash and an extra DP position? If you're looking at slots in the field, where do you go? Well, I just want, I just want to make one more point on the last point, which is, um, you know, even a guy like Messi, who's, I think, the best player in the world ever, there are moments in certain versions of the Argentinian team that he just completely disappeared. And you're like, how can a guy like that disappear? And so I, I think, it, you know, it's amazing how the fit of the team and, and the balance, you know, and the spacing makes a difference. But anyway, yeah. um, I think that's a, that's, as... that's a fair point, though. I mean, there are I mean, Messi still can take over a game even for Argentina, though. And I, I you saw that in the World Cup when things aren't getting to him. He still was able to take over the game and come back and win, even with all the pressure. Well, we're, we're but hold on, we're talking about yeah. Messi, so let's just yeah. let's let's <laughs> slow our roll. Um, right. So okay, so designated <laughs> player. Um, you know, I mean, um, I think my what I I think um, not to keep going back to our conversation last week with Jeff, but um, there was a lot of insight there, and one thing that I think is interesting, so. Um, a number of the players that we signed um, really worked out. They were obviously Tata picked them and he has a really good eye, um, but they were also players that fit with whatever he wanted to do. Um, we have Darren Eels and Bocanegra and those guys, you know, selecting players and the players that they got, I'm not sure fit DeBoer's style completely. Um, and so the thing that really bothers me at the moment is why are we talking about filling the designated player role in the October before the October window closes the transfer window closes and we're not talking about having a head coach we're going to select another player because and then do you think hoist they, that on a coach did do you think that that's happening behind the scenes that they actually already have the coach maybe I mean, what you would love to see if Atlanta United's going to go, you know, jumping back to prominence, you would love to see them announce a, um, a signing, you know, out of the blue, whoever it is. And then the coach signs on, you know, a few weeks later and you know that that coach, you know, said, all right, this is the guy I want as my designated player. That would be ideal. But it doesn't. I 100% agree, though. No, I 100% agree with your thinking there, though, that it's got to be a package uh, between those two. I mean, I think the coach has to be aligned uh, with whatever our next choice is for a designated player because I can only assume, you know, we're probably going to be making a similar type of offer, big splash. You know, we're talking maybe a big transfer fee from 
uh, a player from another league that's in, in, at the same level as a Barco or PT um, type, type of signing. I mean, that's certainly, I think, the expectation that the fans have and, and certainly what we need right now in terms of talent on the field. So not having a coach that is an agreement that that's the slot we need uh, with most urgency would be completely backward if we don't uh, do, do it with uh, the coach in mind. I agree. Um, so, and, and I think it, it, it depends on how either confident or arrogant, depending on your viewpoint, um, Darren Eels and Bocanegra are, right? If they think it's their show and the team was so great because they picked all these great players, um, then maybe they are confident or arrogant enough. But per, um, per Jeff's insight before, it didn't sound like that was the, really their choice. It sounds like Tata was behind the whole. Right. You know, but the question is, did it go to their head and they now think, oh, we had a hand in all this signing. We can just sign all the players. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't know. I don't get the sense from at least those those guys in terms of their personality that they've got a big ego. So I doubt I agree. I doubt that's truly the case. I think it's easy to paint that picture. Um, They're probably very humble and and realize the, the impact that Tata had on on the club and really being so critical, you know, from 2000, at what, 16? When did they actually talk to him? Yeah. Um, but regardless of that, I guess in terms of needs, right, if you were to look at position, if you were the coach, like, and, and you were to think about refortifying where we need to be strong on the field with a designated player, do you have a certain position in mind? Um, I think it's certainly got to be the middle of the park somewhere, but it doesn't, um, um, it could be a, you know, um, box to box midfielder, um, uh, Schweinsteiger kind of player in his prime, that kind of a player. It could be a truly dynamic winger, um, you know, uh, um, either uh, Sancho now for Dortmund or Alf Holland for Dortmund or, um, you know. Um, I'm going to say something that's going to shock the listeners. You know what I think? It, so I agree. That's actually like the, the most logical middle of the park is the, the right place to look because Barco could be going to Sevilla any day. If it's not in this window, it certainly is probably going to be in the next 12 months. So we've got to be looking at, in the center of the park. The other place that I would look is for another world-class striker. Um, love mm-hmm. Joseph Martinez. Best thing that's happened to this club. ACL surgery, mm-hmm. knees. I mm-hmm. am not putting stock in that being a given that he comes back 100% or, you know, um, just being realistic. I mean, unfortunately, that type of injury can slow a player down a step or when they come back, it just gets re-injured and it becomes this nagging thing. And unfortunately that's not me being a pessimist. That's me being a realist. And for the type of soccer that Atlanta United wants to play, why not bring in another world-class striker that can mix things up and hell, wouldn't it be a great problem to have a healthy Martinez and another player that could play just as well as him up front? 
I don't know. Like that's part of my thinking too is it seems like we've got enough young talent in the back. What if we had just unbelievable strikers up front? It depends on the kind of striker. Like if it's the kind of striker who might be able to play alongside another player at some level, then yeah, sure. Um, If it's a striker who needs his own show, um, then maybe not because you have to figure you've got to at least see whether Joseph Martinez is going to be the real deal. I agree with you that there's a worry because the kind of player that Joseph Martinez is, which is really relies on his quickness. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be difficult to get back after an ACL. It's not even his quickness. Sure. I mean, he's a relentless assassin when it comes to, you know, making that run that you could only dream you can anticipate, you know, you're like, Oh, I should have, started that run a second earlier. He he starts that run a second early every time and just imagines whether the ball is played into that space or not that it's going to be played there. And that takes a certain mental strength to continually do over and over and over again, even when the ball is not delivered, to run into that space like it's going to be there, like your life depends on it. And that's the strength that he has. And a knee injury like that can take that, uh, fortitude away or just, yeah, there's, there's something there that I worry about inherently with his return. Not that he's the other thing I think we have to keep in mind, you know, when we're looking for our future talent, you know, and there's already some homegrown players, you know, and Andrew Carlton, Alagos Kunga, um, these are what I would consider to be creative, you know, almost secondary strikers who could, you know, in a year or two play alongside Martinez or just behind him withdrawn. Um, You know, so that's something we need to keep in mind. Like I I wouldn't mind, you know, that's the other thing, right? Look, so if you've got glass and you're just rebuilding, if you will, you know, um, why not make some kind of deal to try and, you know, get Carlton back um and let him play this season with a lot of minutes when not a lot's on the line i you know i can't argue with that at all you know one of the things i mean i don't know I mean, contractually whether yeah that's i don't and it's probably not it probably isn't but in theory i love it because you know again outside of barco someone like carlton could certainly bring some creativity to the midfield that we're just not seeing now i, I you know again like i said i saw a few flashes of Joseto wanting to take that on a bit. And so maybe a little more runway with him, he could be a equivalent to, to Andrew. But of course I would love to, you know, the Atlanta guy here to have a, a stab at more minutes. I think he's certainly capable of it. Um, regardless of, of the things that annoy me about Andrew Carlton, I think his, his abilities are absolutely there. And so hopefully maybe the, the, the loan gave him a new uh, view with a different, uh, perspective outside of Atlanta and and maybe that would be something good if we were able to get him back and uh, kind of a fresh start if you will one of the things that I think is interesting um, and I would be doing if I were the coach um, so Jurgen Dom has looked to me like a little bit of a breath of fresh air on wide mm-hmm. um, I think there are some clear things you know maybe does or doesn't have the best skills or whatever but he's pacey and he wants to go yeah. at people so I think he should be playing right midfield. And to be honest with you, I think Brooks Lennon is out of position out wide. Agreed. One of the things that I was thinking about Brooks Lennon is 
Brooks Lennon has the possibility. He could potentially be a box-to-box kind of central midfielder. Why not put Brooks Lennon in the middle of the park and see if he can help to break the lines and let Jurgen Dom, you know, show the speed at wide? I can't disagree that that wouldn't be an interesting test because the you know the other thing is clear is um, you know Lennon's got a, a good nose for the ball in the box too. He seems to be able to get his head on the ball and attack it in the cent in the center. So he's the one who put Jurgen Dom's cross in. Um, and you know, I, and there was a couple times where he's gotten his head on the ball and got some good contact, and that was all in the center of the field versus out wide. Um, so yeah, I he think- seems good in spaces, and he can deliver a ball. He seems not so enthusiastic about taking people on, and he seems like a fighter physically, which seems much more suited to the center of the park than it does out wide. Yeah, that's an interesting take. Uh, you know. Um, I don't know where that would fit with, you know, the Heinemann and I guess Josetta is the other one of those positions would have to yield, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, I think that I might try him in the middle um, with maybe Remedy and Heinemann um, um, and let Heinemann and, and Brooks Lemon both operate in front of Remedy. And then Josetto, um, I think, could play potentially as a false nine up top. Yeah. Right. You know, with either him starting and Kubo coming on or Kubo starting and Rosetto coming on, um, he seems much more suited potentially to that. Or even, you know, at times if he's not starting, you know, he could potentially come on for either Heinemann or Brooks Lennon in the middle. Right. So what do you think about um, the validity of, rumors of Sevilla trying to put a bid on, on Barco. And do you think that it's probably real, but the number isn't high enough to where Atlanta United feel um, they're going to give him up uh, based on what they think his potential is. And we're, we are talking about, you know, in my opinion, the guy who is the best under 21 in the under 21 world cup. I do think there is a bright future for Barco so, you know, I've said it a few times that I think that to some degree at his development, he'd be better off in a European league rather than the MLS. Um, one of the, the folks on Twitter was, uh, you know, talking about the, the fact that there's, you know, this MLS mold of stronger, more physical players and that Barco doesn't really uh, hold up to that. I mean, he does get dinged up quite a bit, in, you know, which is why we see fewer minutes from him because he does get knocked around quite a bit. But uh, do you think he's better off in like a Sevilla La Liga type of um, environment to develop? I actually disagree about the league. I mean, I, yeah, I do. I think the MLS is a little bit more of a physical league, certainly than La Liga. It's a little bit more lean towards Premier League. But at the end of the day, I think it's in terms of development, it matters much more about who the coach is and whether he's going to develop them and, you know, in the team and not just who the coach is, but where the team is at, you know, is it a, you know, if you go to a Sevilla, you know, and Sevilla thinks that, you know, they, they just won the Europa league, they finished third in La Liga and they think that they're going to be challenging for a title and they're in the champions league next year. And Barco, they see as, you know, an extra luxury or whatever. And he comes on for, you know, five, seven minute cameos. Um, that's not going to help his development. Um, yeah, well, I if think, he's got you know, better coaching than Stephen Glass, it will. 
Yeah, the Sevilla's coach is really good, actually. So if he really does want him, then um, I can't remember his name, but um, they've done very, very well. They've reached the Europa League final two consecutive years. And um, anyway, um, the uh, I heard, though, that it was a little bit forced that the rumor started that Fiorentina wanted him. I think it was Fiorentina in, in, in Italy and that Fiorentina is selling some player who's similar and wanted once they sold him as sort of a package deal to take Barco, but that forced Sevilla's hand. Sevilla was looking at him long term and is not really looking at him as a tomorrow player, which wouldn't be good for for Barco. Yeah. And they got their hand forced because now that another team is interested, they don't want to lose out. Well, I mean, overall, though, the fact that Atlanta United is still able to have these big transfer deals, and if we were to sell uh, Barco, it would be for a big number, probably the, th- the second or third biggest transfer deal in MLS history yet again. And Atlanta United, like a lot of clubs dream about that type of math on their club, uh, which, you know, again, creates a, a flywheel. And to me, the whole thing is exciting, like to be a part of this, whatever you call it, silly season of trades and things like that. I actually like it. A lot of people, and I get it with Atlanta United, um, you know, I've got a Barco jersey on right now. You can't see it. Like, I'd hate to see him go. Um, I love watching the guy play. I think he's an amazing talent, but I'd also again, be excited to see him transferred to a club like Sevilla. I can turn on the TV and be like, yeah, there's a guy that played for Atlanta United. I know who he is and watch his development, hopefully blossom overseas. Cause I think that's where he'd be better suited in the near term. And Atlanta United can now have an opportunity to reinvest, you know, 40 million in two additional designated players that map to a new coach, whoever that will be and the system. So to me, that's the optimism that I have for if Barco does go in the near term here, that the new coach hopefully will have a say in bringing in probably two of the biggest signings MLS has ever seen yet again to Atlanta United that um, change, you know, change the outcome of where we can go from here. Sorry, one of my um, AirPods just died. You can't count on <laughs> Apple, man. So No, I'm just kidding. Turn that off. I hope. Uh, can you still hear can me? Can you hear me still? I can. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm. I'm now on the dear podcast listener. If I'm horrible, it's because I'm now on the computer mic. But um, sounds good. Um. Yeah. Uh, I well, I think there's a difference between um, selling clubs and developing clubs slightly um so if players come here for a couple years become stars and move on i think people are happy about that a la almarone if if we are a total you know way station you know along the road and players are not even looking to make an impact here before they move on and we're just jumping at any opportunity, regardless of its impact on our team, that's not good. Yeah. So, um, well, I think that's part of the, the upsetting thing about PT, which is, I don't think that was ever the goal with him. I think he was meant to come here to be the star mm-hmm. and be a big name for quite some time, um, particularly at his age. And it just, it wasn't working. Right. So I think he was meant to be here for a while 
a while and really be a big name in the MLS. So I think he hurts the cachet of Atlanta United by moving on to a Saudi Arabian team and then a bunch of South Americans looking at the situation and scratching their heads a bit. Um, <laughs> and, and the league in general, right? Like, I mean, it would have been much better for him to have really been somebody who met my expectations and made a lot of those free kicks and just wowed us all. Uh, I really was hoping for that. And I think it's kind of sad that it didn't happen, but I mean, there's a lot of reasons that I'm empathetic to PT that the environment didn't really set him up for the, the best opportunity to do that. So, um, do you think that even if PT or uh, sorry, if Barca does not go, um, in the near term here that he will be gone within six, six months come January. I mean, it depends, you know, Jeff Newberry and Darren Eels would both tell you we're a club that always wants to win. If that's the case, you can't sell Barco now. I mean, you sell Barco now and the team's really at sixes and sevens. Right. So, um, you know, I think there's something to be said about who we want to be, right? You know, um, uh, and and it would be gutsy, right? If somebody, if Sevilla or Fiorentina comes in with a decent bid for him, it would be gutsy for Atlanta United to say no. And we're gonna, we want you to first become a star here and then go. Right. Uh, and the, the thing about Barco and what, what they might have is so normally if you do that, if you say no, you might really anger the player. I think in this case, you might be able to make an argument to the player like, look, you run off to Sevilla now, you may not get playing time. And you he's so young that he still has time that he can still afford to develop for a year or two and then maybe make the transfer when it's a better situation for him. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think there is some some options for Barco as well. Cause I'm sure they're listening to him and, and really what he wants as a player. I mean, I think that the front office is probably decent about that in terms of where his head's at with where he wants to go. But from what I have heard, he wants to go to Europe sooner than later. That's kind of his stance. There's a really big difference in the subtle age though, right? You know, the Almarones and, and Barco who's even younger when he came, yeah. um, they have time on their side, you know, a PD never had time on his side, you know? Um, and that actually is something for the club to realize if we're going to be a successful selling club, you know, there is a really big difference between 26, 27 and, you know, 20, 21, 22. Um, so it's something for us to keep in mind, but, you know, yeah. we're learning, you know, we're, we're a brand new club and, you know, you got to figure this stuff out. Um, what else? What what player um, have you seen, you know, over the last couple of weeks that has at least sparked some interest in terms of upside, whether that's Bello or we talked about Lennon a, a, a bit. What, what about Dom or Castro or any of these guys? Um, Castro, I haven't seen enough of. Dom has looked good to me. Um, the, the one player I want to go the opposite way, <laughs> I hate to be a pessimist, but um, walks has done himself no favor. Oh, um, he does not look like that. He's even capable of being a star center back. Um, one of the things that's been surprising to me. So Meza, you know, went down, right. 
Um, and the, the choice was to go with walks as the center back, but we've got a lot of options at right back, right? Why not put Escobar and really give him the chance to play center back? Like, like, supposedly says he wants to and and i think maybe there's a lot of people who are like oh escobar would never be a great center back because he's you know sort of some of his attributes he's a little too aggressive or these things but i think that he reads the game really well actually and i think he'd probably play very differently at center back than he would at right back and i would like to i would have liked to see him get that chance um, and I would have probably gone with somebody else at right back, even, you know, Brooks Lennon, if you want it. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing I was about to say. It was like, you could put Brooks Lennon in the center or test him back in Escobar's position and switch Escobar into the center. Cause yeah, I agree. Walks is really doing himself no favors. And, and, you know, I was listening to some Bournemouth, um, Twitter fans that were giving Atlanta United fans crap that, you know, he's second or third string on Bournemouth and, you know, come into the MLS or giving the MLS a hard time. But I think they've got, or a, even, got or a even point. A George Campbell, right. I Who love, looked good in his one appearance, as you pointed out previously, yeah. why not give him the chance? I George Campbell, I, there was nothing I saw that discouraged me at all. I felt like he was really strong on the ball, similar, to, similar to miles, you know, young, maybe a little, uh, brash at times but i'd rather see that with the athleticism that comes with it and let them learn on the job um i think george campbell would be really interesting to give more minutes i'd rather see well, that what do you have to lose right now like the, the the fan base is not there in the stadium and people are a little restless anyway like why not you know yeah maybe he makes a mistake or two but yeah. then he develops very quickly and becomes a mainstay for the next you know three years or four years yeah. or whatever it is um, Good call out. Good call out. Um, where am I going? Dave, I've got trivia. I could give it to you or to our next guest. So um, what what uh, what direction do you want to go? It's up to you, Maggie Dobbs. I am notoriously bad at trivia, but I'm always willing to try. Well, I've, I truly have gone to the bottom <laughs> depths of the internet to find 10 questions for ATL oh, on oh. fire trivia. Uh, That's really bad. But I'm gonna try to be quick with it. Let's not let's not drag it out here. All um, right. What does the first of all, what does the end of the internet look like, Mike Adams? It's a scary place. I think they call it the tour or something like that. Is it the Orlando website? Yes. <laughs> I, you know, Sorry, Orlando fans. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding you know, about that. I'm sure there's some lovely people in Orlando. <laughs> I just haven't met them. Um Dave, the largest attendance of a soccer game in a stadium was more or less than 200,000 people. The largest attendance ever? Ever. That was checked in a stadium that they entered into the stadium above or below 200,000. Somewhere in the back of my head, I have it. There was a one time a game that was like 204,000, either in South America or Mexico somewhere. Yeah, so I'm going to go with that there's been a game higher than that. So you're wrong, and that was kind of a mean question the way I worded it, but it was just below. Apparently, 199,854 fans flocked to watch Brazil versus Uruguay uh, in the 1950 World Cup. All right, well. At the Maracana Stadium. That was close. Yeah. 
the world record for juggling a soccer ball is how many hours? <laughs> I mean, this is kind of cool for kids out there listening who are trying to um, achieve great juggling feats. I think the lesson from, from the answer that's forthcoming here is that it's just not worth it. Um, Focus on other skills. I feel like, you know, it's a ridiculous amount of time where you would have to get tired would be something like eight to nine. But if it's a real world record, it's got to be in the 13, 15, 17. Um, I'm going to go really high. I'm going to go with 17. You know, I think that's a reasonable guess. It's like all Guinness World Book records. It's something crazy. 30 hours straight, a young Iranian football uh, footballer set the record. Oh, my God. Yeah. So there's that. All right. So do you remember the um, the soccer balls that we grew up with that had the the checkered panels on it? So the classic kind of black and white soccer ball that had, uh, I guess it's a Pentagon, five sides. I, I think there's other. Um, yeah. How many panels are on that soccer ball? Because there's been a lot of different sewing um, patches on balls where it's it's evolved, but that was kind of the classic one for years. That was actually invented, I think, in the uh, in the the late '60s, uh, yep. which was pretty revolutionary in terms of that design. How many panels? I'm gonna go with 32. That's spot on. All right, the U.S. Soccer Federation was founded before or after 1900. The U.S. Soccer Federation. I know the U.S. Soccer Federation is surprisingly old. Um, so, you know, I mean, you think of the U.S. didn't participate. Well, the World Cup didn't exist until like the 30s and 40s. And then, you know, the U.S., you know, there was the famous game where we beat England in like, what, 1950. Yeah. Um, so you kind of think the U.S. Soccer Federation had to start back then, but I think it actually started well before that. But once again, you've put the date pretty close to where I would say, I'm going to say that it's after that. Ding, ding, uh, ding. Well, you got it. Yeah. 1913. I'm going to just let you win on that one because you, you're, <laughs> you're going with your gut. We're, yeah. mo- we're moving along. All right. So the US, me- U.S. men's national team has had more or less than 35 coaches in its history from 1916 till today. Well, I don't know. Going back in the early days, I feel like we had um, coaches for a long, long time. Um, so 35 is the benchmark, more or less. 35 seems like a lot. Um, you know, over the last, certainly since... 98, we've kind of had a coach on average for every two two to four years. Just give me a second. Um, Come on, Dave. I'm going to go with less. Greg Berhalter was number 36. I'm cold. I'm cold. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Yeah. you got to, you should put the number a little bit farther off. I should, but. Okay, so were half of those coaches even U.S. coaches in terms of their citizenship? 
Were more than half of Certainly them. Certainly all of the early ones were not. Well, Citizen or I'm pretty sure I'm going with Citizen. It, it was okay, it was it was based on it was based on Wikipedia, whatever flag was by their name. And I'm using the dual flags as like dual citizenship. So I'm adding them as US citizens if the I'm still if gonna I, say that more have been US citizens. That's correct. Nineteen of them were US citizens. Um, who was the first U.S. men's national team coach in 1916? <laughs> no idea. Yeah. Thomas Cahill was his name. Um, he, I, I think he was pretty integral in terms of um, getting us into a lot of the the FIFA organizations um, as part of U.S. soccer. Uh, you know, in, in that in that era, we were pretty competitive too. So I think he's one of the godfathers of U.S. soccer. Never heard of him either. His name is Thomas Cahill. Look him up. Give him some kudos. All right. Eric Torres Padilla has the nickname El Cubo or The Cube in English because, A, he's a master with the Rubik's Cube. (laughs) B, he crashes the box or El Cubo, as they say in Mexico. Because he, uh, C, because he has a square head. Or D, El Cubo is his native city. Rubik's cube. I go with. I'm gonna go. Crashes the box. Square head or native city. D. Native city. Mm -hmm. Now, evidently, it's because he has a square head. (laughs) So that's El Cubo. That's yeah, yeah. That's his reason for his nickname. Jurgen Dom had 172 appearances and 13 goals during his last five years stint at this club before signing with Atlanta United. Um, I believe it was Monterey. That would be incorrect. Wait, wait. If it wasn't Monterey, then it was Tigres. All right. Well, I'm going to give it to you. It was Tigres. Good, good catch. All right. Now, this is the last and most important one. Is the word soccer and its origins are actually from where? The United States of America, Britain, Denmark, or Hungary? Soccer, which we get so much shit for from I want to say that it's a that 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 actually was originally a British term. You're damn straight it was, you Brits. So stop <laughs> giving a shit that it's soccer because it's your fault. It's your word. Football Association uh, is a conglomerate of games that evidently a bunch of university people in like Cambridge and all these universities created all these variations of, of these medieval games, which included like rugby and soccer and football association was one of the games that they created, which is, you know, football. And as they created association rugby, that was called ruggers for short and association football was actually uh, shortened down to soccer and believe it or not, in press, and there was a, a guy who did a study on this. He went back and looked at a lot of the newspaper publishings in the mid-50s to 60s to 70s in, in, uh, in England. And soccer versus football, natively in, in England, was used interchangeably. So they would refer to it as soccer or football, pretty much 50-50. That's what we do. So, you know, we're just... Uh ahead of our time and so evidently in the so it changed when uh u.s soccer in the 80s and 70s to 1980 was so it, the nasl as you know was kind of hitting its peak in 1980 and so all of a sudden the press in england started using soccer 
as kind of a negative terminology for the way that it was played in the U.S. because the, of the NASL being you know popular with Pelé and so so they they branded us. They did with their one of their words for soccer that they've been using for quite some time. Mm. Soccer. So there you go, Brits. It's your word, not ours. All right. I got that off my chest. Um, That's like a rant number two. Yeah. The sequel. <laughs> so Dave, the show is yours from this point forward. We're an hour in, hour and three minutes. Anything uh, else? I think we can wrap it up. Um, I think we've covered, you know, the major transfer, the silly season, dear okay. podcast listeners. The silly season is the uh, nickname for the off season when, when all the transfer rumors fly. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, the fun part about it is, is that we're, at, you know, a club like Atlanta United, at least for this period of our club, we're a part of that, uh, which is fairly rare for an MLS club. So while, it is painful to think about losing a PT or a Barco or Miguel Almiron. There's a lot of soccer clubs that would beg to be in our position. I hadn't really thought about that. I actually agree with you that I, that it has been fun to be part of the silly season. The only thing that's strange and it's even more strange now because of COVID-19, but being part of the silly season as an MLS club means that it's actually typically during the season, right? Because right. the silly season for Europe, where we're trying to send all our players and where all the money's going to come ju- from. We're just starting. Right? Yeah. right. That's that's the summer, right? And that's our season. So that's the only hard part about being part of the silly season, which I had never thought about before from an MLS standpoint, is that you got to go through it during the season. you got to worry about losing your players um you know during the season although mls does normally have only limited transfer windows so normally you wouldn't be going through this right now in the direct middle of the season and that's been changed because of covid right yeah and i I don't even want to know because i don't know how that's changed european soccer's window for the transfer season with covid and how that all is working out now with it's um, changed too but i think for the podcast listeners the most important thing is that the transfer window in MLS will be closing at the end of October. So you now have a full almost two months um, just before the election. Um, we'll know the future of our, of our Atlanta United team. Well, Dave, uh, it has been an excellent podcast and what well, we got a game tomorrow night against Miami. And uh, hopefully everybody will tune in to that game. Do you know what channel it's playing on? It's on Fox South, Fox Sports South. Excellent. So I don't have to rely on Fubo TV. Yes, no more <laughs> Fubo Rats. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, excellent podcast, everybody. Thanks for listening. Join us again. We're going to be back online, I'm sure, after our game against. Uh, Miami. So have a good evening. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening. If anybody actually made it this far in the podcast, we'd love to hear your feedback on Twitter at ATL on fire and tell your friends to subscribe. We are on iTunes, Google play, and really any sort of podcast uh, platform that you're on. So do listen again. Have a good one.